0: this morning is to join me as we're turning to a new series over the course of these months together and it's a series in the book of Daniel and the reason for this so there are many but one of them of course is that last year we ended in the old testament in second chronicles where the israelites have been swept into captivity in the land of babylon And so I thought it would be fascinating for us now and this year to spend some time looking at what it was like to live out your faith in a setting that was utterly opposed to Christian faith and in the changing times in which we live. In many ways, we can feel like foreigners when it comes to our faith and the way in which we have to relate the Christian faith and the culture in which we live and in the changing global matters that we're being confronted with. And so here is a man, Daniel, as you're making your way in your Older Testament to that first chapter, who had to wrestle with, how do I apply truth to life in the changing atmosphere in which God has placed me in? So as you are looking very carefully at your your own personal experiences and the way in which you're attempting to raise a family in these changing times and you want to be able to equip family members well with truth, and relate that truth to the times in which we live, the book of Daniel goes a long way to equip us to do that very thing. So this morning we're going to use the first chapter as the basis for understanding how this book's going to unfold. In particular, I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 7 to give us a sense of where all this is going. And here now, you and I are told that in the third year, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. and The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the tribe of Judah, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. And as you look at those words immediately now, you find some familiarity there because those are the fellows, of course, that you are going to find that having to address the trials of life in the furnace, we're going to look at it in a couple of weeks to come. But this morning, what we want to do is look very carefully, how do we go about not only equipping our lives, but training our family and equipping our family to be able to apply changeless truth in the changing times in which we live. For that, we're going to pause and we're going to look to God in prayer. And Father, when we look at this passage, when we realize that the story of these young men are really... Stories of young men in their teenage years and how they had to have a sense of scriptural conviction to be able to withstand the changes that were coming their way, to be able to determine in their own hearts
1: where do I draw the line. how can i be a person who so transformed by your word
0: can resist this whole challenge of being conformed to this world and how can parents in these services find insights to be able to equip their their children to be able to do this very thing we need wisdom
1: So I'm praying that there will be an added
0: element of wisdom that we are all able to gain from these verses this morning. Whether we apply these verses personally or both personally and to our family members and beyond. So Father, in these minutes together, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, we've come here to see Jesus and and Him only.
1: And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a very powerful
0: story that is told of Benjamin Franklin in his latter years. When he was part of the convention that was putting together our Constitution. The years had taken their toe, and he was a wearied man by the time in which the Constitutional Convention was convening. And the convention itself was getting dragged out into the heat of the summer days. It was a June 28th moment on that calendar of his life. The progress had been slow, and he felt he had to say something So he stood in front of the delegates with his eyes focused upon George Washington, who at that time was president of the convention, and he shared these words. I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth.
1: That God governs in the affairs of men. Now,
0: for the people who are living in the land of Judah, they might be wrestling with who is governing our affairs. We've put our faith and trust in God and God's promised one to come. But lo and behold, we find our nation under siege from a power from without. A nation known today as modern-day Iraq, part of what we are observing daily and nightly on our newscasts. And so, with that nation under siege, the people who had put their faith and trust in God, His plan, His purpose, and that person to come, are going to find that their faith is going to be tested as they are about to be swept from the Judean landscape into a distant land, the land of what we now know as modern-day Iraq. And the question is, how will they go about living out their faith in a setting in which, by and large, people are faithless? Now, at a very personal and practical level, if you're a parent this morning, you may be wrestling with similar things How do I go about equipping our family members in the days, the weeks, and the years to come so that they might be able to live out a faith, an authentic faith in Christ alone, in a manner that will allow them to be able to withstand the winds of change that seem to be sweeping the global landscape we find ourselves walking on today? Now, to do that, what I want to do with you is to look at this first chapter this morning, It's a biographical sketch that gets this whole story moving. It's a story about men at a very young age who had to come to an inner resolve regarding their relationship to God through the promised one to come, Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as you and I look carefully at this story, we're going to draw out what we will call three significant points of awareness that I think are necessary in the light of the changing times in which we live. Again, that basic question we wrestle with here, how do I apply changeless truths to changing times where I can carry on an intelligent conversation about both changeless truths and these changing times? Three points of awareness now emerge out of these verses. And the first one flows naturally out of verse 1 down through what we read in verse 7. And it's this, that in the testing of your faith, the testing of our faith, number one, be aware of the cultural changes we now face. Be aware of the cultural changes we now face. Begin working with me in verse 1. And ponder what's taking place here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it's modern-day Iraq, where ISIS is having now a field day, so it seems, came to Jerusalem,
1: viewed as God's home turf, and besieged it. Now, as the Judas, Judaites would look very carefully
0: at what's occurring here, they would say one significant change that's taking place is how these changes are affecting us politically. They look at this man who would not profess faith in their God, Yahweh God, And yet here he comes and he moves right in and sweeps us from the landscape where we had been promised this land. A basic
1: question emerges. Where is God? What is he doing? Why is he permitting these things to happen to us
0: at a very personal level? You ever wrestle with those things, those issues, where you thought you had the Scriptures and you have been living a life of faith, and now the winds of change have swept in, and all of a sudden what seemed to be a constant is now becoming a variable? What you and I have to understand is that in knowing the times, we also have to know the truth. And you nor I can separate verse 1 from verse 2. Imagine both the media in Babylon at this time, as well as in Judah at this time. The Babylonians assume that they now have achieved a greater sense of rule and reign. They're in control. The people of Judah feel as though they've lost something and may begin to wonder, what is God doing and where is God at? Ever wrestle with that? Daniel answers those questions in verse 2. And here's what is astounding. You and I are informed that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into this secularist's hand, into this Babylonian king's hand, into the hand of this ruthless leader. Now, here's the thing the press would pick up on verse one, they would know who's in charge politically, but the press would not pick up on verse two. And who is orchestrating events supernaturally? Here's the challenge. Too often, believers become conscious of verse 1 and simply press into their subconscious, if you will, the truths of verse 2. The reality here is this yes, Nebuchadnezzar now rules, verse 1. But what is important to understand is that God overrules, according to verse 2. And now Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to wrestle with God because he has transported the people and various aspects of the truths of God into his land. And now God is about to invade his space through a man by the name of Daniel. So often what God will do is he will allow people to assume they rule, but through his own workings, he overrules to achieve purposes that may not be immediately uh, in our own sense of awareness, but are still part of his ultimate plan, for our lives. I thought about that. I was pondering a documentary some time back. Nature has a way of revealing illustrations of God at work. It was a documentary dealing with the frigid waters of Greenland.
1: Stay with me. There are countless icebergs that are being shown some are small, some are massive. Create the scene in your mind. Now if you're observing them
0: carefully, you're noticing that the small icebergs are moving in one direction
1: while their massive counterparts are flowing in another Through the lens of the naked
0: eye, you're asking yourself, why don't they simply all flow in the same direction, small and large alike? But we have to get beyond simplistic explanations.
1: Surface winds are driving the small, little ice.
0: whereas the big, gigantic, massive icebergs are not being carried by surface winds. They are being moved
1: along by deep ocean undercurrents. Start applying it. When you and I are faced with trials,
0: when you and I are faced with tragedy, When you and I are faced with incredible tests, it's helpful for us to begin to discern that there are at least two forces at work. There are surface winds that you and I might be conscious of. They represent everything which is
1: changeable, unpredictable even distressing.
0: But simultaneously, beneath the surface of life,
1: there is another force at work which is even more powerful. It's the sure
0: movement of God's sovereign, wise, holy purpose.
1: Operating beneath the surface. And the deep flow of his unchanging plan is at work. Most people are simply aware and conscious of surface winds. And they're
0: irritating. And they are challenging.
1: And they are confusing. They are verse 1 people only. But the Christian embraces both verse
0: 1, the surface winds, and verse 2, the powerful oceanic undercurrents that are moving the massive structures maybe in a different direction than the surface winds are pushing But all of this is being orchestrated simultaneously by a sovereign God who's at work in ways in which you nor I can fully decipher through the naked eye looking at the surface of life itself. Question. When you're looking at family dynamics, when you are looking at national dilemmas, And when you are looking at global tensions, are you simply a verse 1 person? Or do you embrace verse 2 as well and say, I am simultaneously committed to understanding a sovereign God who utilizes both surface winds and undercurrent oceanic movements to achieve His purposes. And I will trust Him. Even the in the oceans
1: of the unknowns. Now that's what we're dealing with here.
0: Don't miss the tension of verse one and verse two. Don't lose the connection that God wants to establish early on in this first chapter. He's seeding your thoughts for everything that flows. You know what he does? Now he's about to move you from the global slash national issues of verse 1 and verse 2 that we are impacted by to the highly personal and geographical issues that we have to live out our
1: space in in verse 3 through 7. We're dealing with teens young people here who are going to have to
0: embrace changeless truths in these changing times. and ask some tough questions as to, and where do I draw the line in the convictions of my soul? In verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel Notice the selective approach. Both of the royal family and of the nobility. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. And notice this to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Not of Israel, not of the Jews, of the Chaldeans. They're going to be steeped in a secular education. How will they process this? They need to understand that all truth is God's truth, no matter where you found it. no matter where you are placed. Moses would have been educated in the courts of Pharaoh in a highly Egyptian, pluralistic culture, and God would use that because someday Moses would return to those very educational courts to be able to address Pharaoh and the false gods that Pharaoh had embraced. And use that education to be able to challenge Pharaoh that there is one supreme sovereign God. Yet, simultaneously, God would use the wilderness experiences as part of Moses' educational life. Because someday, Moses will find himself not tending literal sheep, but the sheep of the Israelites through that same wilderness. And God was equipping both at the personal level and at the corporate level through educational means of impacting people for his glory. And now Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are being lumped into this setting. And the question is, what will they be doing with the truth that they have already embraced in their past? And will they allow for scriptural convictions rather than mere personal preferences to shape the decisions of their lives. When you're faced with decisions, do you start with scriptural convictions or do you begin with mere personal preferences? Notice the changes they're facing the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. That's important because these young men would have been steeped in Levitical law. And in chapter 11, there were tremendous teachings regarding the whole matter of Jewish food. And the food laws were simply physical expressions of the call of holiness. They were means, not ends. This is important because Daniel is going to have to figure out, and where will I draw the line in this culture I am now positioned in? Now, in verse 6, we're told that among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe. Don't mistake this. Where did Jesus come from? Which tribe? The tribe of Judah, And in verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. They didn't choose it for themselves. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. Azariah, he called Abednego. And I thought for the sake of it all, we need to simply allow for these names to appear on the screen as we think about the cultural changes that they're facing. Look at the names here. And notice the changes that are occurring. Notice how Daniel's name ends, the first bullet, and how Mishael's name ends, the third bullet. It's an EL. You get Elohim from that. EL. One of the great names for God in your Old Testament. Notice the second and fourth bullets. What are the suffixes there? I-A-H, Hananiah, Azariah. That pertains to the Jewish personal name for God, Yahweh. Notice the definitions for those names. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is? And Azariah, Yahweh is a helper. But now notice here that in the winds of time, the changes that are occurring here, where the changeless truths are being confronted by the changing times. There is a change in diet. There is a change in education. There's a change in geography. There's a change in political leadership. But there's also a change in name, and it's highly significant. And what the Babylonians are now doing is they are attempting to get Daniel and his friends to slowly but surely become assimilated into their culture and disassociate themselves from the Jewish culture until the scriptures are simply but a distant memory. Belteshazzar, the false god Bel, of the Babylonians, protect his life. Shadrach, Kamanavaku, the moon god. Meshach, who is like Aku. And furthermore, Abednego, the servant of Nebo. Now what is occurring here is this. They have been transplanted
1: geographically, but also spiritually.
0: And the question is, will they be assimilated? Or will they be able to maintain their distinctives? And where does a young man, and how does a young woman, determine where do I draw the line in the times in which I live? And where is God? This looks so confusing. Dennis Haan writing, regarding the sovereignty of God, Tells of a story that took place in Chicago, and I still remember the incident. It was the Flight 191 in Chicago, which crashed with all 254 aboard. He wrote of how a Christian had providentially escaped death through an unexpected delay in New York, which kept him from flo- catching the Flight 191 in Chicago. And how it spoke of how God was at work. But then he received a note from his reader subsequent to that article. I just had to let you know, Mr. Dehan, about one of God's great saints who ran to make Flight one ninety one, and he made it. And his name was Edwards Elliot, and he was pastor of Garden Growth Orthodox Presbyterian Church in California. His plane from Pennsylvania was late. And a friend who had accompanied him to Chicago said he last saw him dashing forward in the terminal to make his connection. And as I read about Pastor Elliott's fruitful ministry, the question I raised in that that June devotional I penned challenged me with a new urgency. Was God's
1: sovereign providence simply operating in New York and not in Chicago? Immediately the words of my correspondent came alive.
0: At the time, Pastor Elliot didn't know he was indeed running to heaven, not merely running to an airport. And Mrs. Elliot and her four married children comforted the entire church And the region in which Pastor Elliot shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and their testimony of how he had lived for Christ impacted that region beyond for God's glory. How do you explain how one believer is saved from tragedy and another believer encounters tragedy? One is safely protected from heading to an airport. The other runs to the airport and in essence runs right into heaven. There are shifting winds as well as oceanic currents. There are are winds that skim the surface. And there are movements beneath the surface. And if we embrace the surface and don't trust God for the undercurrents, we're going to miss out on the big picture, which at this time he sees, but we may not. And we simply become verse 1 reactionaries to what we think is going on, rather than embracing both verse 1 and verse 2. And trusting God for the totality of life, even though we don't
1: see the depths of what's going on, you see. You're skimming the surface. Are you going deeper? Well, faith which can't be tested, as we've said.
0: Is faith which can't be trusted. So we're back now to the testing of our faith. And we said in verse 1 through 7 that in the testing of our faith, we need to be aware of the cultural changes we now face. But now in verse 8 through 16, number 2, be aware of the scriptural standards we must apply. Know the times, know the truths. No verse 1, no verse 2. Don't you love what comes next in verse 8? Equip family members to embrace this principle. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank.
1: Doesn't say that his parents resolved it for him. Somewhere along the way, you've got to internalize truth.
0: Somewhere along the way, you're going to have to personalize truth.
1: Somewhere along the way, you've got to say, this is for me to resolve. Daniel's away from home. His parents are alive. What are they thinking? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food.
0: He understands the effect it will have on him. Or with the wine that he drank. We have to help
1: people understand the effects of their decisions. He's young but he's mature. It's possible to be both. Notice
0: what happens here.
1: I want you to see here under this second
0: this second point of awareness a tremendous combination. The combination that unfolds in front of your eyes and my eyes, it's the combination here of resolve and request. In verse 8, he makes, he makes a decision in his heart. He purposes in his heart. He resolves that he would not defile himself. He understands cause and effect. But notice what he does. Out of respect, in verse 8, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Notice that God gave Daniel favor. Daniel did not simply achieve it. This is grace. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Now, there are many people that are tremendously fearful in the air of change. And Daniel is going to have to decide, am I going to just simply mount a cultural attack here? Instead, wisely, what Daniel does is that he crafts a question. Remember our critical question series of the summer? There are wisdom in biblically designed questions that are tied directly to God's word. In verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Meshau, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. That would not have been my choice for the menu, by the way. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. All because of at the end of verse 8, he requested, in the form of a critical question, that the chief of the eunuchs allow him not to defile himself. Now, what we have to do is to equip the next generation to be able to ask the tough questions, combining request with respect, Out of reverence to the God of the universe who is working with the undercurrents of life. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that when people stop believing in the truth,
1: they do not believe in nothing, they believe in anything. What was interesting about
0: what was being offered to the Jewish young nobility here is that they were being offered a wide range of spiritualities. But there was one spirituality that
1: was not to be found. God. Yahweh God.
0: Now, they're going to have to wrestle with the tension of truth and tolerance, as do our children, as do we. And now the question that Daniel has got to
1: answer for himself is, where do I draw the line? When you cannot live in isolation, you have to deal with insulation. He is not isolated from the false spiritualities, but because of his commitment
0: to God's Word, he is insulated from these false spiritualities. But what he does is that he poses a critical question, and he allows for the for the authorities to test him. Faith which can't be tested. It's faith which can't be trusted. And what he understands is that the equal toleration of these spiritualities is not to be equated with equal validity of these spiritualities. Equal toleration is not the same as equal validity And so this wise young man is saying, test me. And we've got to be able to equip the next generation to say, in essence, I'm testable. I don't live in isolation. But through inner resolve, I'm producing insulation. So he listened in verse 14 to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. God can work even within a ten-day period. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the years who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink. And now he's going to have to operate on faith, on the basis of what he has observed as he has examined the evidence in the testimony of these young men who have not necessarily mounted a militant cultural attack, but rather have provided a scripturally sound amount of evidence that needs to be examined in the midst of the educational and spiritual realms of the Babylonian culture. You can take away my name.
1: You can't take away my God. Well, the steward took away something. He took away their food.
0: And the wine they were to drink gave them vegetables. In the tensions of true and false spiritualities, there are always issues of substitution substituting for God, substituting for Scripture, substituting for Christ. That's why in Islam they produce a substitute for Jesus on their cross. False substitution. Even though true substitution is Jesus taking our place on their cross. Do you see the substitutions occurring in this first chapter in the tensions of truth and tolerance? Well, this is critical young lady wrote me just recently and she said can you help me i've returned to the university and we're dealing with the whole issue of truth and tolerance in my university chapter here what i said is that as you examine carefully and deeply the teachings of god's word allow scriptures to be able to shape your thinking to the degree in which you're able to say there is Absolute truth revealed here and relative tolerance to counteract relative truth and absolute tolerance that was being espoused there. And look for the ways in which you can relate truth and tolerance in a manner
1: in which you can be tested and trusted. So there's a third point
0: of awareness, and it flows out of verse 17 through 21. That thirdly, in the testing of our faith, be aware of the spiritual distinctives we will present. For Daniel, he chose the Levitical 11 Jewish food regulations as his line in the sand. We equip the next generations to determine where we draw lines and send. And as for these four youths, notice how it reads. God gave them. doesn't say they acquired. God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, which equips you to understand what's coming in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has one bad dream. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. He's going to test them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Notice the names that are being used here. Still the Jewish names. The E-L endings. The I-A-H endings. Therefore they stood before the king. He rules. God overrules And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And lo and behold, now what this one of highest authority is able to do is to see the distinction between a faithful follower in Yahweh and those who aren't. He can draw conclusions for himself regarding the validity of the truth that Daniel embraces. And so should be our approach as well. Allow the culture to see the distinctives and realize that when faith is tested, faith can be trusted and truth can be tested and
1: found to be true no matter where you find yourself. The distinctive. It happened in 1805.
0: A number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council at Battle Creek, New York. Mr. Cram of the Boston Missionary Society was sharing the gospel in a large gathering. At the end of the gospel presentation, one of the chiefs, Red Jacket, got up to speak, and this is what he said. Brother, we are told that you've been Teaching about the great spirit to the white people who are our neighbors. We are well acquainted with our neighbors. We will wait a little while and see if the effect of the great spirit is upon them. And if we find that it does them good, makes them more honest and less inclined to cheat, then we will certainly consider What you say? And when the distinctives are clear,
1: the truth can be shared. And so, Father, as the
0: opportunity to worship you in concluding song allows for us and equips us in our hearts to embrace your truth, Allow us, Father, to see that you are the sovereign God at work, both at the global level and at the personal level, directing our attention, not so much to the times in which we live, though we have to be intensely aware of them, as to the truths that you have taught, and allow your truths to shape our understanding of how you, the
1: sovereign God, are at work. We give you the praise in Jesus' name.